Uh, my name is Marco. Uh, I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, I hope you all are doing well. Uh, welcome in light of everything that is going on. So glad to worship alongside y'all. Got a couple of things for you, but uh, I would invite you to join me in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, as Gabe read earlier, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29. Got a, a lot of uh, as one of the other guys said to me, a lot of packed content, um, and so we'll see how we do this morning. As you do that, I got a couple of things for you, um, and, uh, and then we'll get, we'll get going. Uh, number one, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have those available for you. That's our gift to you, so if you don't have one, definitely take one. Uh, you're welcome. If you know people who would benefit from having them, some of your friends, please take some Bibles and hook them up. Uh, if you'd like to hang out as long as, uh, you know, the social media allows us to, uh, fill out one of those Connect cards and we'll get back with you because, again, we'd love to hang out. John talked about that just a while ago. Other than that, uh, what I'd like to do for our time is go into uh, a moment of prayer. And I want to extend this time. Normally, I'll, I'll read the scriptures, but Gabe's already done a fantastic job uh, on that. I want to just spend some time in prayer given uh, all of the content and everything that's going on uh, in our community, in our city, in our, uh, our state and world, all of that stuff. I'd love to just spend some time praying before we dig into into the sermon. So if you would, join me, join me in prayer. God, we are so thankful that we get to gather together and worship you, revisit the promises of your word, um, be comforted and convicted, even challenged by you, Holy Spirit. Lord, and if we're honest, um, that's not always something we want, but we know that it's something that we need. In the midst of all of that going on, Lord, they're surrounding, uh, surrounding the news, surrounding you know, COVID-19. Lord, there's, there's so much going on. There, there are people on, on one side of the spectrum who are uh, getting all the things ready. There are some who aren't as much. Um, Nevertheless, Lord, it's obvious that people are concerned. It's obvious that people have been afflicted. And so, God, as, as your people, may we demonstrate compassion, whether it's uh, specifically to our neighbor, uh, whether it's to friends in other cities, churches in other cities, whether it's even specifically on social media. May we be a people that demonstrates compassion, because regardless of where we stand, one of the things that we see Jesus do throughout uh, the Gospels is that there's a ton of things that would seem inconvenient and even are to the disciples, yet Jesus stays and prays and teaches. And so may we demonstrate that kind of compassion. God, in the midst of everything going on, may, may we lift up uh, our, our government officials who are making some uh, serious and difficult decisions. God, we pray for wisdom, that they would exercise wisdom well. And at the same time, Lord, may we lift up medical professionals who are uh, not necessarily backing off, but instead pressing in in an effort to help those who are affected, whether it's literally been affected by this virus or uh, who are just freaking out. Medical professionals who are pressing in to what is going on. God, I lift up our, our city that in the midst of, uh, man, chaos and, and concern and, and, and scare and even darkness, that we as, as, as your children would be able to demonstrate, again, compassion, that we would be able to demonstrate love, and that we would be able to be selfless in the midst of mm, chaos. God, I pray that in light of this pandemic, that we as your people, that this pandemic would actually lead to global revival. That this would begin with us. God, earlier this week, 
on social media, I read this post that stated, why is this virus spreading faster than the gospel? God, that does not annul or dismiss the concerns that it does give people. And it certainly doesn't affirm the apathy from others. But instead, it should challenge us. It should convict us through your Spirit to preach the gospel, to demonstrate compassion, and to proclaim the excellencies of your mercy. God, may we do that for your glory and our good. May we do that so that your kingdom continues to expand, so that more would come to know Jesus, and so that we would simply be a part of the ride and get to see you at work, changing hearts, renewing minds. At the end of the day, Lord, may we be transformed by your spirit and not conformed to the world around us. God, as we dive into your word this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would set me aside and that it would be you at work in the lives of my brothers and sisters. God, that those who who don't know who you are would come to know you this morning. And that those who, who know you would come to know you better. God, I pray for repentance. I pray for uh, hearts checked. I pray for hearts to be challenged and convicted. Not for the sake of guilt or condemnation, but transformation. God, may you be present, and we know you are, but may you be present and at work. We're still going to ask, will you be present and at work in us this morning? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, someone's got a phone call. Okay, here we go. Uh, so this week, has uh, it's, been, it's been pretty crazy, but at the same time, it's also been uh, fairly fascinating, uh, all these two things at the same time. Uh, one of the things that I've learned or I've come to learn as a preacher is that uh, God allows me to personally encounter and experience whatever the text that I'm preaching on that week teaches. Additionally, as I've met with individuals this week and, and throughout our, our time in this series, uh, the theme has seemed to center around, uh, or the th- let me back up, the theme concerning what I'm teaching on tends to be the center of the conversation. Repeatedly this week, the conversation has been about abiding in Christ. And if you were here last week, one of the things I mentioned was that to abide meant that we were active or we are active in perseverance, persistence, and remaining in a fixed position. The conversations this week seem to center around that, abiding in Christ. And when we got to the nuts and bolts, when we got to the practical application in these conversations, we all realized that we are not as persistent as we presumed. Interestingly enough, while we are going to address and examine what it means and how to abide in Christ, we are first going to get there by addressing heresy. What a Sunday. And that's what the passage ultimately opens up with. And so I want to be clear about two things as we dive into this. The first thing that I want to be clear about is that the word heresy is often thrown around too much and too loosely in evangelical circles. There is a distinction between perhaps uh, error and disagreement and actual heresy. Which brings me to the second point, that when it comes to heresy, it has been classically defined as withholding or erroneous teaching that withholds others from salvation, from the knowledge of the person and work of Christ. For instance, many would argue that most heresies come out of a misunderstood or a false view of the Trinity, 
So again, it tends to be theological, and so from there it tends to uh, uh, evolve into erroneous teaching, and as a result, it withholds grace and salvation from people who don't know Jesus because it is error in its teaching. And so this morning, we're going to view how John pastors us by encouraging us to remain in Christ by abiding in him as we examine four sections. If you're new, I love lists. First one is the reality of heresy. That's what we're going to talk about in just a moment. The second one is the result of heresy. The third is going to be safeguards against heresy. And then finally, perseverance by abiding. And so I'd like to start with the reality of heresy, and I'd like to reread just this section of Scripture. This is verses 18 through 21. And so the Apostle John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. First thing I want to address is the context of the passage, because I think if we don't address the context of the passage, we can view it and learn it or even teach it inappropriately and certainly out of context. And so the first thing, and this isn't necessarily on your notes, so I just want to kind of give you a view of this, but the first thing that I want to address is that John is writing to Christians that are plugged into the local church, and as a result, they have watched their friends walk away from Jesus. That is the first thing that I want you to know within the context, not only of this passage, but of this epistle. One of the tragedies, I think, that many pastors encounter is that they see people walk away from Jesus. It's heartbreaking, it's grieving when people walk away. And that's what John is talking about in this section. He is addressing Christians that are watching people walk away from Jesus. The second thing that I want you to know, and we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. The second thing that I want you to know is that there is some language in this first section that is very attractive and that we often tend to put a great deal of focus on, and I'm not saying we should, but sometimes when we place a great deal of emphasis on some of this language, it takes away from the overall message or the overall context of what the author is actually saying. And so I'm referring to the phrase, the last hour, and antichrist. You can never know how to properly say it. antichrist, antichrist, whatever. As John writes about the last hour, what I want you to know is that what he is doing is stating a theological truth, not necessarily a chronological statement. Here's what I mean by that. In the context, John is saying, or what John is ultimately leading to, is that one day Jesus will return to reclaim his bride, the church. That is what he is saying. Now, because he states it here in uh, chapter 2, he is not saying that he knows when he is coming. He is not saying that it is imminent. If you go back to the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus says that not even he knows when he is going to return. And so when John states, hey, we're in the last hour, we could address it to the sense that we too are in the last hour. That Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning to reclaim his bride, the church. He is not stating something chronologically like it's going to happen tomorrow. He is stating a theological truth that Jesus will return. That's number one. The other one is the word, as I mentioned, Antichrist. That word itself is used about five or six times, and it's mainly, if not always, used by John. That does not suggest that the characteristics, so to speak, of the Antichrist aren't in other passages of Scripture, for instance, 2 Thessalonians or Revelation. I'm not 
addressing that. I'm addressing the context to which John is writing. He isn't necessarily, though it's not completely off, he is not necessarily speaking about Satan, but he is speaking about great opposition to Christ and his bride, the church, primarily through false prophets and false teachers. And you see that in the context. We'll unpack that a little more. But I don't want you to get caught up so much in those two phrases or that language, not because it's unimportant, but because I want you to understand the context to which John is writing in. So with that being said, right, that's a little rant. Let me give you two important things that I wish to draw from this first passage as it pertains to the reality of heresy. Some of these things are on your notes. The notes are available online. And so the first thing, I've, I've titled it the, the, the Visible and Invisible Church. Here's what I want to address with this. And this is all coming from verses 18 through 21. The first thing is that the truth about heresy is that it doesn't always necessarily start or begin from outside the walls of the church. When you read through the teachings of Paul, oftentimes he is preparing the church to defend against false teaching from outside the walls of the church. In this context, in 1 John 2, what we are seeing is false teaching, heretical teaching coming from within the church. For some, when it comes to this, and I want to address this quickly, for some, when it does come to false teaching or heretical teaching, it's not always theological head-scratching paradoxes. Oftentimes, when heresy uh, comes out from within the church, um, I'll, I'll quote this one author, his name is Brett McCracken. He says, oftentimes heresy is the result of boredom. And this is what he says. Ultimately, when we become bored with things that should actually inspire in us awe and gratitude, the problem is pride. In the context of 1 John 2, people are not only falsely teaching from within the church, they are also influencing others, and in addition to this, they are revealing that they were actually not Christians. That in this context, this is their, so to speak, unmasking. He goes on to say, therefore we know that it was the last hour they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, check it, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is saying that they are unmasking their true selves. That they are revealing really where their allegiance and their heart has been. And the truth is, opening passages like this should rattle us a little bit. And I think it's here that we would address the visible and the invisible church. Here's what I mean by the visible church. It refers to exactly what it suggests. Everything that is visible. You see, in the church, right, oftentimes, oftentimes we evaluate our relationship with God, our salvation through Sunday morning attendance. Maybe it's through group life. Maybe you've even been baptized. And the truth is for many, that not all or many, that the hearts are still hardened and far removed from Christ. I mean, is it really so much of a surprise? It, Christ himself addresses it in the coming days where uh, people will say, Lord, Lord, we did these things in your name. And then he says, depart from me. I never knew you. We've talked about this before, that the, the word new there implies relationship with Christ. Plenty of people can do the things that Christians do. Plenty of people who believe they are Christians can sit in the Sunday morning worship. Plenty of people can recite the gospel, just memorize 1 Corinthians 15. 
Plenty of people can be baptized because of an emotional tug at their hearts or experience. But we know from Scripture that the result of salvation is a changed heart. It's a renewed mind. It is being able to discern what is good and pleasing to God. I'm not saying that's you, but it should rattle us a little bit to examine the condition of our hearts. Additionally, when we look at the invisible church, what that refers to is those who persevere in the faith. Not that they are perfect, but that they abide in Christ because he is the one who first initiated the relationship. What it ought to do is give us a heart check. More than anything, it should rattle us because we should examine the condition of our hearts. Moving on, John then goes on to give us two distinctions of those who actually don't belong to Jesus, those who are heretical in their teaching and actual followers of Jesus. He gives a couple of things. This is all in the same section. So I've mentioned that they unmask themselves. We're going to look at the results of heresy in just a moment, but as they have gone from without the church, they have made it plain to let you know that we actually didn't belong here. And then he makes a distinction of Christians. And he goes on to say, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He's saying those who have embraced false teaching, those who are heretics, have embraced and adopted heresy and have walked away from the church and certainly Christ. But those of you who are followers of Jesus have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. When you look at the word anointed, it has Old Testament imagery that it was the sign of, it was an external sign of something that God had done. And so when he says that you have been anointed by the Holy One, he is referring to the anointing of the Holy Spirit that comes into the individual whose heart has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The second thing he says is that you actually know the truth. I'm not writing to you because you don't know it. Throughout this epistle, oftentimes what we're going to see is that John references things that he has already written, and he's not repeating himself just to repeat himself. He's repeating himself for the purpose of emphasis on the church. And so when he says, I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, he's saying, hey, you who are Christians who have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not ignorant. You actually have the word of God because the spirit of God abides in you. And we're going to talk more about those two things specifically, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But that's the distinction that John makes in this section, that there are those who have embraced heretical teaching. What is the contrast of Christians? Christians have been anointed with the Holy Spirit and know the truth. They possess the truth about God. And so it leads us into the next section. Well, then what are the results of heresy? This is verse 22, I think, through 23. John writes, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This is what John says the denial, or excuse me, this is what John says is the result of heresy is the denial of Jesus as the Christ. That's the result of heresy. The denial of Jesus as the Christ. In this context, and I'm going I'm to expand a little bit more on this, in this context, John is writing uh, to inform, defend, against this large group called the Gnostics. Gnostics are people that are coming from within the church and are trying to influence others and they're trying to take them 
with them. Uh, Gnosticism really is this philosophical belief or this embracing of a philosophical belief that suggests that the body and anything material is bad and the spirit within you is actually good. And so they would compare that to the teachings of scripture, to the teachings of Jesus, and they would say, actually, Jesus really didn't die which is in great contrast to the fact that Christianity teaches that Jesus died on a cross for sinners, uh, was buried, raised on the third day, resurrected on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's a great, great contrast in that. Gnostics would also teach that salvation isn't necessarily by faith in, uh, by faith in Christ alone, that salvation is through knowledge and inner enlightenment. That's what Gnostics would believe. And so that's who John is writing to. He even counters, or he, uh, he, he, he gives the church a warning, but he counters this kind of teaching in his next epistle. This is 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, with all that being said, that's the context in what John is writing to. And so for you and I, it's like, okay, I don't know if I know Gnostics, but I'm sure we do. It's not like they don't exist. But here's what I want to address with this. One of the things I began thinking about as John is writing to defend against Gnostics, one of the things I began thinking about was, okay, then what's the equivalent of that in our time? Or what is the equivalent of some of the temptations of this teaching in our time? And so I came up with a couple, right? And if you go to the bookstore, they would be under the Christian living section. If you follow, you might even follow some people who hold these things. The first one would be mysticism. Anybody heard of mysticism? Mysticism suggests that Revelation about God happens from within. But when we read the pages of Scripture, we see that it is God Himself who implants His Word in us through His Holy Spirit. But they might twist, and oftentimes when it comes to heretical teaching, people will take passages from Scripture, twist them just a little bit to where it sounds right, good, and biblical. Mysticism is incredibly popular today. And it's not too far off from Gnosticism, that salvation by knowledge. Mysticism teaches that, hey, you can receive, or you can actually, you can get revelation about God from within yourself. Just go into the woods, stand on a rock, and it'll come, right? The next one is spirituality. Now, that's a great big, broad topic. But specifically, what I want to address that when it comes to spirituality is that there is a dismissal of truth for the sake of peace and love. I'm going to expand on that a little bit. I'm not saying we should go to war. I'm, not, I'm going to expand on that in a little bit, okay? But spirituality suggests, hey, yeah, truth is good and all, but man, peace and love, and let's just, let's just love one another, and it dismisses truth. Another one might be, whatever, the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel preaches that if you give, you get something. However, Jesus preaches that if you give, you get to give more. Some word of faith movements that if you have enough faith, then God will actually do something. And if he didn't, it's because you didn't have enough faith. So it is an abuse of scripture. Now, we can talk about that. We can be like, yes, I've seen some of those on social media. My concern is that some of you like some of this stuff because you're bored with scripture. Some of you ascribe to some of this, whether it's through following some of these individuals, whatever, primarily because you're bored with scripture and perhaps you're seeking an experience to affirm that you belong to Christ. I'm going to give you a weird analogy. It made sense in my head. 
might not make sense in yours, but we're going to try it anyway. When I was competing in weightlifting, one of the supplements that was always encouraged was pre-workout. Some of you know about pre-workout. The idea of pre-workout or a, a, a pre-workout supplement is that it is meant to give you nitric oxide boost so that you would focus on whatever it is that you were doing and get like this massive pump, right? All it means is that it feels like your muscles are going to tear. Anyway, that was the whole point of, of, a, of a pre-workout. When pre-workouts first came out, they were super potent because they weren't exactly, exactly regulated by the FDA, right? And so the instructions would say, <clears throat> the instructions would say, take one or two scoops tops, right? And so you would take your one or two scoops with your water, you'd take it 30 to 45 minutes before you go to the gym, and then all of a sudden you'd start to feel this tingling sensation uh, because of the pre-workout. And that was this little amino acid called beta blockers. Anybody ever got uh, lactic acid where it just feels like everything's going to like build up and blow up? right? Uh, what beta blockers do is they keep that lactic acid at bay so you can keep going, essentially trashing your body. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the idea was that you would get so fixated and focused on whatever it was you were doing. The problem with pre-workout was that eventually your body uh, became, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, tolerable, right? right? It became tolerant of, uh, of the dose. And so idiots like myself would increase the dose from two scoops to three to four, sometimes six. Why? Because you're chasing that experience, right? Some of these Christian circles entice you or lure you by having you chase the experience. And if you're not feeling the tingling sensation, just like you would in pre-workout, something must be wrong. Some of you are bored with scripture, and so you ascribe to some of these, uh, I suppose, circles of the Christian faith to chase the experience rather than ground your feet, doctrine, and heart in the word of God. Now, as if that wasn't enough, there certainly is a downside to taking so many scoops of pre-workout. At some point, your adrenal glands cannot keep up, so they can't release the chemicals in there because they're burnt out. And as a result, it can lead to kidney failure. Same thing when it comes to you chasing the experience. Let me pause. I'm not knocking experiences. The Christian faith is an experiential one. And what informs us of our experience is the word of God. Those who chase after the, these isms aren't necessarily always grounded in the word of God. And so much like pre-workout leads to kidney failure, chasing the experience apart from the word of God leads to spiritual deprivation. And so your organs are depleted, you're not healthy, and some significant changes need to happen. I don't want you to ascribe to these. I'm just going to be honest. If you learn about them, you should be able to pick it out what's contrary. You should be able to pick out what's contrary to Scripture because you yourself are grounded in Scripture. You are like Jeremiah who says that when he found his word, he delighted in it like food. As a result of these things, excuse me, as a result of these things, us as the church must pursue the purity of doctrine. Some of you get scared with the word doctrine. Some of you get scared with the word theology. But if you say Jesus is the Christ, that's a heavy theological statement. Congratulations, you're a nerd. Okay? I want you to listen uh, to R.C. Sproul. This is what he writes. He says, We prefer peace to truth 
and accuse the Orthodox of being divisive when they call a heretic a heretic. It is the heretic who divides the church and disrupts the unity of the body of Christ. The church must protect her doctrine as it is revealed in the pages of Scripture in order to defend against false teaching and in order to contend for the gospel. The result of heresy is a dismissal of the person and work of Jesus for the sake of peace. When you take a look at these isms, oftentimes you hear nothing about Jesus. You hear nothing about the resurrected King. You hear nothing about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so sometimes the church, and this might be you, you sacrifice truth for peace. Let me tell you something. Because you might say, well, aren't we supposed to strive for peace? The author of Hebrews says that. Yes, we are absolutely to strive for peace. That does not mean that we forsake truth. It means that you're not a jerk. That's what it means. You don't have to be mean or rude or crude or belittling people when it comes to speaking the truth with love. But it certainly does not mean that you forsake the truth for peace and love. If you're giving really good advice but not giving the gospel, then you're not giving the gospel. Say that one more time. If you're giving good advice but not good news, you are not preaching the gospel. So let me encourage you, not just to ground yourself in the Word of God. We're going to talk about that more in just a bit. But if you, man, hold fast to some of this stuff, and if you can't pick out some heretical teaching, some false teaching, I don't think that's the, the author's the problem. I'm just going to say that. Moving forward, this is what John says. John, John gives us two safeguards. So we've talked about the reality of heresy. We've talked about the results of heresy and even some of the temptations that we face today. So let's look at the safeguards. How do we safeguard ourselves uh, when it comes to heresy? Well, he gives us two things. He gives us the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. This is in verses 24 to 27. He says, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, e- e- eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he or just as it taught you, abide in him. John gives us two safeguards. It is the Holy Spirit and the word of God. We've been talking a little bit about working out. It's like the basics. You just can't get away from them because they work. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. When he talks about the Holy Spirit, actually, let me scroll down just a bit. When he talks about the Holy Spirit, you can hear the echoing of Jesus' words. I'm going to give you two passages. This is John, uh, it was actually him. So John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Additionally, in John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. If the Holy Spirit abides in you, then he, his job is to teach you, guide you, counsel you, convict you, and all of those things are rooted in His Word. That's the beauty of it. You can check what's going on through God's 
word, which leads to the second safeguard, which is the word of God. He says, what you have heard from the beginning. What is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. What you have heard, keep it going and abide in that truth. He's ultimately encouraging us to grow rich in scripture because it protects us from false teaching. It allows us to discern lies. It reminds us of the promises of God for us in Christ. It protects your family. That is the word of God. I suppose the question then is, are you bored with Scripture? If you are, then perhaps you're not abiding. Which leads to the second part, or the last part, I should say. Where John encourages us to persevere by abiding. I'm going to go back to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in a bit. When it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, man, we, got, we might get some amens. We might even circle that in our Bibles, and we might even say, yes, yes, yes. How? How did these things get cultivated? What must I do? John, in this chapter alone, between six to eight times, has said, abide in him. Do you want to remain in him? Then abide in Christ. That's, that's John's, you can call it his, his encouragement or his exhortation. You abide in him through the word of God. You abide in him through the Holy Spirit. These are going to allow you to persevere. And so I want to talk about abiding for just a moment. Last week I gave you the definition of abiding. It is, it is active. It's not passive. That we persist. That we ground ourselves in a fixed position. Well, what's the opposite of abiding? Withering. To disappear. That's the opposite of abiding. And then that led me to think about, okay, well, what does that mean for us? How, how can you and I be tempted to wither? And as I was talking with a couple of the guys this week, it led me to think, well, being in a hurry. Being in a hurry leads me to wither. Being in a hurry leads me to disappear. Now I want to talk a little bit about being in a hurry. All right. I want to give you two examples because I know there might be some comments, but I want to squash those right now. <laughs> the first one is another illustration using, it's a meathead illustration, so I'll try to keep it brief. There's this bodybuilder who's making a comeback. His name is Evan Sintapani. Really cool guy. Anyway, as he's making a comeback, he, in this one video I saw, he's, he's giving his, uh, his meal plan. If you know bodybuilders, those dudes eat a lot, right? Like it's, their, it's literally their job, right? So they, they eat a ton. Anyway, he goes on to talk about how all of his meals are significant for a couple of purposes. One, they're going to help his muscles recover. Two, they're going to help his uh, muscles mature. And three, they're going to help his muscles grow. And he is incredibly intentional. I'm sure many athletes are as well. But he is incredibly intentional about setting hmm, these fragments of time aside to just focus on this one meal of chicken, rice, and kale. Right? What strikes me isn't so much how much he eats. What catches my attention is the significance of the nutrition he has. Like, in other words, he considers meal one as significantly the same, like, as, as important as meal number four. And a meeting isn't going to take him away from eating meal number four. A phone call isn't going to take him away from meal number four. He is going to set that time aside, and just focus on that one meal. So it led me to believe, or it led me to think, right? Let's talk about our spiritual life, our disciplines, our spiritual disciplines. Many of you have quiet time in the morning. That's, that's me. That's cool. After thinking about Evan Sintapani, I started wondering, man, I get some quiet time in the morning. I actually don't return to scripture at all the rest of the day, most days. And this dude sees these meals as significant if he wants to grow, mature, and recover. What would it look like 
if we as Christians viewed God's word in a way that's going to grow us, mature us, and help us recover. I, I, don't, I don't know if we look at God's word that way. And I think that's the great conviction. What would it look like to set that time aside? I was, I was on the phone with one of the other guys, and, and as we were finishing up, I think it was, it was James, we were, as we were finishing up, we had like 30 minutes before the next appointment. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go read, read scripture, because I had 30 minutes before my next appointment. And we hung up, and I opened it up. And it was really good. I'm not going to lie. Like, I really dug it. And that was the last time I did it. <laughs> right? This dude, Evan, believes that if he doesn't consider these meals important, he deprives himself of nutrition. But you and I don't necessarily think of it that way when it comes to Scripture, that just because we gave it a good glance or looked at the proverb of the day, all of a sudden we're experiencing some nutritionally dense Scripture. What would it look like for us to actually consider God's Word as more significant than the next thing on our plate or the next thing on our schedule? With that being said, the pushback rebuttal might be, Marco, you don't know my schedule. You're right. I don't know your schedule. I'm sure many of you are super busy. So I'm not knocking that. So then, in my thinking, it led me to think about the life and ministry of Jesus. Check it. Stay with me. Jesus, particularly in his ministry, taught to large crowds, uh, he was in an MC with 12 other dudes. He was in a discipleship group with three other dudes. He performed signs and wonders and miracles. He traveled from town to town, preaching, meeting with people one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes got really hungry. Oftentimes got inconvenienced, or what looks like it was inconvenienced. And so if we were to look at his calendar, we would see that he, by definition, was also busy right? One of the things that we don't see Jesus do or be is he's never in a hurry. He's super busy. So if you're like, man, you don't know my schedule. You're right. I don't know your schedule. And Jesus, we don't see him in a hurry. We don't see him in a hurry. In fact, in the midst of everything that he has going on, you see him go out by himself to pray to the Father, sometimes overnight. The night before he was, or the night that he was betrayed and ultimately falsely accused and arrested, he's praying with some immense pressure on him that he literally sweated drops of blood. Like he's got things to do. He's got stuff that's coming up, but we don't see him in a hurry. And so my, my final encouragement is, as we're about to wrap up, I get that you're busy, but why are you in a hurry? And so here would be my encouragement when it comes to spiritual disciplines. I want to talk about three, and we'll be real quick. First one is, here's what I would encourage you to do this week. Pursue silence and solitude. Oftentimes, we get uh, tempted with crowds and, and, and noise and just get stuff going. I mean, given, given, you know, the corona thing, like maybe we won't be in crowds. So now you got silence and solitude, right? With that being said, with that being said, in silence and solitude, you're faced or forced to address the actual condition of your heart in fellowship with God. I told you last week that if we can summarize 1 John, it is to pursue fellowship with God and fellowship with the people of God. Let me encourage you to pursue silence and solitude, not just once a day. But let me encourage you to pursue silence and solitude so that you may face, or, uh, so that you may face and address the condition of your heart and have fellowship with God. The next one would be Meditation. That as you read God's word, that you would actually hold fast to the promises of God. 
Well, how do we hold fast to it? The psalmist in Psalm 1 says that you're just going to meditate on it day and night. So you chew on it. You memorize scripture. You preach the gospel to yourself. Your doctrine begins with God himself. Let me encourage you to meditate. And then finally, let me encourage you to be in community with one another as long as time allows. <laughs> right? Let me encourage you to be in community with one another. This isn't just fellowship, but it's for the sake of discipling one another, of encouraging one another, of speaking the truth about the gospel to one another. Let me encourage you on those three things. That if you and I are going to abide, that means that we're going to pursue the Holy Spirit and the Word of God we're going to grow in our spiritual disciplines for the sake of maturing, for the sake of growing, and for the sake of recovering. Christian, are you abiding in Christ? Do you dismiss the truth of Christ for a lie? Let me encourage you to repent and turn away and fix your eyes on Jesus. See, the Spirit abides in you. Therefore, grow mature, and recover as you delight in his word. And if you don't know Jesus, Jesus invites you to abide in him through repentance and belief. To stand on a foundation of truth that is offered to you through him. Repentance is turning away from your sin and fixing your eyes on Jesus the church will persevere. And it will persevere by abiding in Christ. Let's pray. God, as we continue to worship you and as we respond to you through, through prayer, through giving, through, um, through singing. God, may we not lose sight of or dismiss what you, Holy Spirit, are, are doing in us. God, the, the, the question that was put forth uh, today was, are we bored with your word? Lord, we see from John that this is a dangerous place to be. And so, Holy Spirit, would you convict us so that we might find joy in our salvation, joy in Christ and in Him alone. God, there are going to be things that are going to be tempting, whether they're worldly or cultural, and they're going to try to sway us from place to place, to and fro, God, may we be grounded in the promises of your word. Holy Spirit, may we not ignore you for the sake of temptation. In fact, Holy Spirit, would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you guide us back to the pages of your word? God, as we continue to worship we're going to move into tithes and offerings. Lord, let this be a time where we, we demonstrate your work in us. Where we give not just faithfully and cheerfully, but we give sacrificially. And the reason we give sacrificially is because this form of worship begins with your gospel. And so, God, would your word inform our giving this morning? We ask these things in Jesus' name.